Welcome to the Life on Repeat podcast with me, Laura Valancourt, licensed mental health counselor, geriatric mental health specialist, and dementia coach. I'm so happy that you found us. Well, hello, everyone. It's my pleasure to introduce Kim Dwyer to our show today. And we are going to be talking about a fantastic topic. I've been really excited to cover this. We're going to talk about sleep today. But first, I want to introduce properly uh, Dr. Kimberly Dwyer. She's a clinical psychologist, an author, and a business coach. She has over two decades of experience working with adults, teens, and children and excels at the treatment of anxiety, stress, and managing transitional times. She has a book that was released for adults called Mindful Mondays, Transforming the Everyday to Claim Calm and Reduce Stress. Oh my gosh, I love the title of that book. (laughs) And this book supports people with everyday strategies for mindfulness during daily living. And you can learn more about her work and her book releases at drkimdwyer.com. And I'll, of course, have all of that in the show notes as well. But Kim, Dr. Kim, it is so (laughs) nice to meet you and to have you here on the show. And um, I have so many great questions for you about sleep. It's one of those things that you hear about the basics, right? You hear get good nutrition and and get exercise and sleep is always at the top of that list. (laughs) Maybe you can tell us a little bit about just in general, what brought you to, what is your interest in sleep and how did you yeah. begin to yeah, study sleep? Absolutely. Yes. Thanks, Laura, for having me. It's, it's a, a really interesting topic. And I, I agree, like when I'm thinking about like supporting people, I think the three things that are the most basic are nutrition, exercise, and sleep. And can we control our nutrition for adults most of the time? We can certainly at least make an attempt to get regular exercise and work on, you know, the motivation to do that. And then sleep just seems elusive for a lot of people. Either I sleep or I don't sleep. And there are a lot of things that we have behavioral control over that can help with sleep. And there are times when sleep kind of gets out of our control, but we can, you know, do things that are going to maximize our opportunities for sleep and our quality of sleep. And I think given what I'm interested in clinically, anxiety, stress, transitions, that often goes hand in hand with sleep. People live a lot of anxiety often will describe can't get to sleep because as soon as I kind of shut down the distraction of the day, the mind just explodes. You know, all the thoughts are coming at me. Anticipatory anxiety can be horrible. That's when people are going to sleep, like thinking about what they have to do the next day. And all of that kind of emotional activation can really get in the way of falling asleep. And the sad part of that is one of the great things that sleep does for us is it helps us with emotion regulation. <laughs> so when we most need support around emotion regulation, you know, we're potentially interfering with that if we're having trouble sleeping. So that's, you know, that's one reason I'm interested in it. Personally, I've had periods of time in my life where I've struggled to sleep. I think back to childhood and I don't think I slept great as a kid in part due to allergies that weren't, you know, really addressed in 1970s people. I don't think we're as cognizant of that stuff. So I can certainly empathize on personal emotional level with what it's like to struggle with sleep. And then I think when we dig into the biology of sleep and 
it's almost like the biological basis of some of our behavioral functions, like from an evolutionary perspective. It's so fascinating to me how sleep and the the way our sleep is so tied into our environment and our circadian rhythms and our social structure and how that supports us as a species. It just, I think is fascinating. It's fascinating. I mean, and, and when you really think about it, sleep is the one thing every human being has to do. And we do it. How many hours? I mean, we talk about what, eight hours, 10 hours, five mm-hmm. hours, whatever, but every single day for eight hours, <laughs> yeah. our biology is dedicated, you know, and needs this thing. So exactly. Yeah. And when I was in college for undergrad, which was early nineties, I took a, it's like a neuroscience class, I guess, or biological basis of behavior kind of class. And there is a chapter in there on sleep. And the main takeaway from the chapter is here are the things that go wrong if you don't get enough sleep, but we really don't know why people need sleep. And that wasn't that long ago, you know, yeah. like, yeah, we're 30 years into the future, but the sleep science just exploded like in the early 2000s. And we know so much more about it now. And if we just think of like the efficiency of an organism, we wouldn't sleep essentially it's probably more than a third of our life when you throw in the fact that childhood we sleep more than eight hours a day we wouldn't do that if we didn't need it you know that's when we're the most vulnerable as an organism as a creature you're asleep you're pretty much defenseless right we wouldn't spend that much time in that state if it wasn't so crucial serving us somehow yeah serving Mm -hmm. us somehow Mm -hmm. and you're so right i mean the science that's coming out now is fascinating and i can only imagine what we're gonna continue to discover Maybe you can start by telling us a little, just kind of briefly, what happens when we sleep? What do we know about what happens when we sleep? Yeah, so pretty much most of our functions have some interconnection with sleep. So sleep is important for hormone regulation. There's hormones that are released when we're sleeping that we need for like hormones are kind of the messengers for the entire body <laughs> as far as what what's supposed to be happening and going on sleep is tied in heavily to learning and memory so if you think about most learning is essentially memory we do a task a certain number of times we commit it to memory and those memories are consolidated or like kind of i think of them as going from like these gelatinous kind of things into like concrete right when we're when we're sleeping so it's you know super important for learning and memory, so important for school-aged kids to be getting enough sleep because we're packing their brains every day with as much as we possibly can, and we want them to remember it. Sleep has is tied in with appetite and eating behavior. So there's some really interesting studies. I feel bad for these people. So they sleep-deprived people. <laughs> I don't know that they're even doing this anymore, but they've done these studies where they sleep-deprived people, and then they give them access to a buffet, and they're secretly like, counting calories basically and not just calories but like the types of food choices people make and when we're sleep deprived we eat more and we make food choices that are like heavier fat sugar like heavier carb and fat load and if you think about that evolutionarily we evolved as a hunter gatherer society we're really no different genetic genetically than people were hundreds of thousands of years ago and at times when we weren't sleeping in the wild, I think of people in the wild, it would be because we didn't have enough food (laughs) and we were staying up all night to find food. And, you know, that's essentially what would be happening. So that sends, you know, sends signals to the body and how we release insulin, how we burn calories, how we feel hunger and satiety. 
are all tied to how much sleep we get. And then conversely, if we're not getting enough caloric intake, we don't sleep well. So it's something to be careful if you're, you know, if your nutrition's off or you're ill or you're restricting food due to a diet or something, it can end up impacting your sleep. Sleep is also heavily involved in emotion regulation. So that's one of the pieces that there's, there's some pretty good research supporting that one of the functions of dreams is to help us with emotion regulation or it's happening during that REM sleep, whether it's related to the, you know, the conscious experience or the, I don't know if you call it conscious because we're asleep, but the, the remembered experience of a dream, or if it's, that's just extra good, you know, icing that goes on top of that, but but it is related to how we process emotions and regulate emotions. And no surprise, if you've had a night where you haven't slept well, you're probably moody and grumpy the next day. <laughs> your ability to manage your emotions is going to get impacted. It's also heavily related to immune system functioning, body repair, cellular repair, all those things are related to sleep. This is incredible. <laughs> I'm making this list as we go. And I know each of those things we could dive deep. Oh, into. Each of those things is probably an entire podcast. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I was thinking too about the impact and, and we don't, I know we don't have to go down this rabbit hole, but my mom is a nurse who worked nights for years. And I know you talk a lot about shift work and, yes. and people who the, their impact on their circadian rhythm and their life expectancy and all of the the compromise to your immune system and, and things like that. Yeah. So, yeah, this kind of leads into the next question I was thinking of, which really a lot of the stuff you've addressed by answering that question, but what, what are the ramifications of not getting good sleep? So mm-hmm. we're talking to caregivers who mm-hmm. don't have a lot of control often about when they get sleep or how much sleep they get, or if even if they do, their lives are uh, often very different than in the past, and they mm-hmm. are likely experiencing a lot of stress. And so what are the ramifications that stand out to you? And I know we just kind of went through this whole list of what happens when we sleep. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, a couple of big ones that come to mind first, you're taking people that are in a potentially pretty stressful situation of taking care of somebody that you love that's has progressive illness. So you're, you're starting from you're in high stress. What do we need for that emotion regulation? Well, we need to get a good night's sleep. What's going to interrupt our sleep? The fact that we're caregiving for somebody whose sleep schedule is probably disrupted because that's very common in dementia to have a disrupted sleep and wake cycle. So it's like they talk about the overused cliche, I think in mental health is put the oxygen mask on yourself before you help the person next to you to the best that you can trying to really get that self-care in. And it's not always going to be possible. So maybe don't set this rigid expectation of I have to have eight hours of sleep or my day is ruined. That actually feeds into something we can talk more about is the, the cognitive piece that interferes with sleep is when we tell ourselves those stories. The reality is we do want to maximize our sleep. Everybody from time to time is going to have times when they're not sleeping as well. And we're usually able to function okay. You don't want it to go on forever and you don't want to leave insomnia unaddressed. For people who have the option of tagging in and out with another caregiver if possible, even getting like overnight help to support caring for their patient in their life so that they can get a better sleep, all of those things would probably be helpful. Mm -hmm. Thank you for bringing that up too. That is uh, often folks that I talk to or work with are 
so overwhelmed that it helps to just sort of simplify, like we started the the talk about kind of the three most important basic things that you can do Mm -hmm. for yourself. Mm -hmm. Eat right, and and if you can move or have any movement in your life, and that's right. help too. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, I'll ask this question first. I have so many questions. If you were talking to someone and you were sort of assessing their sleep quality mm-hmm. of sleep, sleep hygiene, you know, what mm-hmm. are the questions that? What are the things that you would be asking? Or because I'm thinking when I'm talking to people, and I'm not a sleep specialist or expert at all, but I'm always asking what time they go to bed or what time they get up or how many times they get up in the night to go to the bathroom or check on their person or do they fall back asleep easily or not? Those sorts of things. So yeah, what are you? Yeah, those are all great questions. So, and it's interesting when they've done like research on in medical settings, when people come in, I guess, for like well patient appointments, when they ask people, how, how well do you, do you sleep? do you have insomnia? People say, no, I don't have insomnia. When they actually get into the qualities, the, you know, the diagnostic characteristics of what makes up insomnia, people are really poor historians. So insomnia actually gets underreported and we're not great historians about the quality of sleep that we got. So pretty much what, what do we have to say? What do we slept? Well, how many times did I wake up? And let's put an asterisk on that. How many times do you remember waking up? Right. There you go. (laughs) Lots of people, it's really normal to wake up at night and lots of people wake up at night and fall right back asleep. And, you know, you can probably talk to some people in your life and say, Oh, do you, you know, if you have a partner that you sleep with, do you remember asking me about blah, 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 or you got up and blah, blah. blah, And they're like, yeah, I don't remember that. We are, especially in lighter stages of sleep, we're monitoring our environment. I mean, that's like a safety function too. So a loud noise, we might wake up recognize nothing's wrong. We go back to sleep right away or a pet that's in the room that makes noise or jumps on the bed or whatever. Spouse that snores. <laughs> yeah. It's a spouse that snores or yeah. Gets up at night. Any of those things can wake us up. So I would want to know what time are you going to bed and what time are you getting up? I'd be really interested to know if that's regular or irregular. So making it as regular, like the biggest takeaway about maximizing your sleep is consistency and Keeping like that sleep routine, you know, the time, the bedtime routine before bed as consistent as possible. And to the best of your ability, keeping your nighttime hours, like the times that you're sleeping as consistent as possible is important. So I'd want to know what is your sleep efficiency, which is actually just a number we can calculate. That's time asleep divided by time in bed. So how efficient are you making your sleep? And just as an example of that, if we have a person, I did a couple little bits of math before we started. Okay. If you're asleep for eight hours and you're in bed for eight and a half hours, your sleep efficiency is 94%. That's pretty good, right? We take maybe 30 minutes to fall asleep or if we're up in the middle of the night for five minutes here and there, that's good sleep efficiency. If we're asleep for five hours, but in bed for eight and a half hours, that's only 59%. So we've got four and a half hours of time in bed where we're not sleeping, which is not great in terms of feeling rested, but it's also not great because now we're associating being in bed with being awake, which is what we don't want to do. Conversely though, if we're asleep five and a half hours and we're only in bed for six hours, we have 92% sleep efficiency, which is pretty good, but we're going to be tired because we don't have enough sleep opportunity. So like sleep isn't magic. We can't just sleep for five hours and think, I can function great. Research shows that there's a very, very, very small 
number of people who actually can get by on less sleep, but the majority of people, even if they say, oh, I function well on no sleep. Again, we're, we're poor historians. We're not functioning well. We're just used to it. Yeah. Yeah. You know? it may not be as well as we think. <laughs> yeah. And this number is shocking to me. If you are awake for 19 hours, your driving as, is as impaired as if you were drunk. Now, 19 hours might sound like, oh, who's awake for 19 hours? But if you are up at seven in the morning and you're out until two in the morning, you're awake for 19 hours. So think about like a Friday, right? If somebody has a regular work day, they're probably even getting up before seven and they're, it's a party night and they're out and they're on the town and they're coming yeah. home at 1.32 in the morning, whether or not they were drinking, they're you know drunk. Yeah. You know what I'm thinking of is surgeons who... Or it used to be. I don't know that it still is this sort of expected that they're going to work all these out all night long. And, you know, and they're all right. Yeah, I just had this conversation with my husband. I'm like, if I ever need emergency surgery, you ask how long they've been awake. He's (laughs) like, I'm pretty sure if it's an emergency, we're going with whoever's best qualified. (laughs) And he said, otherwise, you're going to be the one asking. (laughs) Right. Good for him. (laughs) He's a sharp guy. (laughs) Yeah. What an important thing to think about. Uh, Thanks for sharing that statistic. And then the scary part to me is if you've got people that are awake 19 hours and they're up and, you know, out partying until two in the morning, they probably are drinking and they're sleep deprived. So what's that doing to their motor function? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Again, I'm bouncing around because this is such a good topic. Mm -hmm. What would good sleep hygiene look like? So those are sort of the questions that you would kind of be looking at and you're Mm -hmm. Have pulled out a couple of things to be thinking of, especially that piece of we're not very good historians of our Mm -hmm. own. (laughs) We're not good at evaluating our own level of sleep. So uh, there's kind of two questions there. Are there tools or ways that Mm -hmm. we can get a better idea of how good sleep we are getting? Mm -hmm. Um, And then what does good sleep hygiene look like? Like what are the things that that we can be doing to improve our sleep? Sure. Yeah. So sleep hygiene is all those protective practices and factors that help us preserve sleep. And again, they tend, when we have good sleep hygiene, we tend to mimic those, we're using air quotes, humans in the wild. So like we're very tied to our environment. We're diurnal creatures, meaning we're awake during the day. We tend to sleep at night and we, our body kind of follows the rhythm of the sun. So there's two processes that are um, going on and in sleep, literature, they refer to them as process S and process C. I'll start with C because that's for circadian rhythm. And that is basically we tend to, our awakeness tends to track the light. So when we think about that, everything that we can do to increase our relationship and our awareness of the day and the night is going to help us to sleep. So some of the things you'll see for sleep hygiene are get up and get outside early in the day, especially if it's a sunny day get exercise early in the day, especially if you can do it outdoors. That's a great thing. And I know not all of us can do that because of work schedules and and all that kind of stuff. But if you can get outside, get some sunshine early in the day, it's kind of like you're just hitting that button in the brain that's saying, Hey, it's daytime, (laughs) time to be awake. And look, I'm getting the blood pumping. I'm out here power walking or whatever I'm doing. I've heard. Yeah. I was listening to, I don't know if any of you have ever listened to Huberman's lab. Andrew Huberman is a doctor. Gosh, i I shouldn't be quoting this, but neuroscientist, researcher at Stanford University, amazing uh, lecturer. 
He's got a podcast, Huberman's Lab. Anyway, he's big on sleep. And one of the things that he was also saying, so you're just reinforcing this, is Mm -hmm. he encourages people as soon as they wake up to get sunlight in your eyeballs. (laughs) Absolutely. That that belief, he, he was saying the most important thing that you can do for your sleep at night is what you do first thing in the morning. Mm-hmm. Whatever you do first thing in the morning is going to impact how you sleep the next night. Or Absolutely. That night. Yeah. Which, it yeah. was really interesting to, to hear that. So yeah. Yeah. Reinforcing this. Cause yeah. And we want that, that message coming back to the brain that it's daytime. You're awake. Here's the sun. Here's your like animal connection to the world around you and, and all that. So that early morning stuff is important. And then as the day goes on, as we're getting ready for bed, think about what happens naturally in the wild. It would get cooler at night. It would get dimmer at night. It's usually quieter at night. You know, there's not like at least the activity from the humans around us would be quieter. So other pieces that help with sleep are, if you can, it's like hundred degrees out here today, as I'm saying this, but keep the bedroom slightly cooler, whatever you can do to make that happen and be cognizant of that. Yeah, they they sell bedding, right? Sheets mm-hmm. heard that that are I've even seen like this thing that's like almost like an air conditioner for your bed. Wow. I think, yeah. I mean there's lots of stuff out that you can spend a lot of money. Sure. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. Like a big industry, right? Yeah. Yeah. But want to eliminate noise and light from the bedroom. And a lot of people will say, like, oh, I do that. And then you dig into it and it's like, well, how well do you really do that? Like drapes, if at all possible, get blackout drapes or blinds or whatever for your windows. Think about, I think of this as like sneaky light that gets into your room. So it could even just be a nightlight. If you don't need a nightlight, don't have one. Lights on chargers or like I could just look around the space I'm in right now and see a bunch of things that have little LED lights on them, right? And if those are in your bedroom at night, they might keep you up. And if you need to have them in there, like maybe you have a CPAP machine cover it with a little bit of like electrical tape just to, you know, dampen out that light noise as much as you can eliminate that at night. A lot of people do well with like background, like ambient background noise, even like a fan running can do that for you or like white noise machine. I've had a couple of people recently tell me they use headphones that have like noise canceling that, that are made for sleep. It's a big brand. I don't really want to say it and endorse it because I don't know how great they are, but You can go look that up. There are, you know, headphones that are made just for sleep that just kind of play ambient noise to help you screen out background noise. Thinking about, I mentioned pets already. I have dogs. I love my dogs. If I wake up at night, it's not uncommon for it to be because of my dogs. (laughs) So a lot of people recommend, you know, have pets out of your room or, you know, try and control noise from pets. And of course there's times when we need noise. Like we need to be woken up if we're caring for somebody, you know, whether it's a baby or, you know, an adult that we care about that we need to be on call for them. But to the extent that you can get rid of the rest of the noise, you know, do that. And then it's amazing that our brain can screen out certain noises. Like I'm occasionally, the other night I was up with one of my dogs and I'm about a mile and a half from like a freight train line. And I could hear the train. I'm like, gosh, it's like two in the morning. I must sleep through this every night. And it's not really, it's not super loud, but you know, it's a noise that I would notice if I was awake. Mm -hmm. Other ways of thinking about light are light from electronics. And I think there's, there's two problems with, there's more than two problems, but two problems related to sleep with electronic use. One is it is a high level of light and it's typically pretty close to our eyes. You know, I'm 
sitting in front of a laptop right now. These lights about two feet from me. But when I switch over here to my phone, you know, I'm, <laughs> for me to be able to see it, I'm holding it like 12 inches, 18 inches from my face. And that's, it's not just light that's coming in and signaling, oh, it's daytime. It's also the type of content that's coming in. So it can be very activating if I'm like reading the news on my phone in bed while I'm getting ready to sleep or even social media or checking work email, anything like that is, you know, that's a signal of like be awake and deal with this issue as opposed to right now you're chilling out and going to sleep. So a couple of things that come up around light. Hey, I um, have a pair of those blue light blockers, um, mm-hmm. which I know are glasses. Yeah, against electronic Mm -hmm. light, but also artificial light. And I don't know, I could be fooling myself. It's one of those little subtle things. But I feel like when I, I went through a phase where after dinner, I would just put them on. And so I wore them when I watched TV and wore them when I was on my phone. And I really feel like it helped. But that's good. Again, you know, you know, and I've, I've seen in some places that there's not a ton of support for that. But then I've also seen the theory for why we're so sensitive to blue light in terms of sleep is that we evolved from way back when from sea creatures and that's the light that would filter through in the ocean with, you know, it's more the blue light that's going to get to, you know, your eyeballs and into the brain where you're releasing melatonin and all the things that are helping with sleep. So yeah, I definitely think like whatever works, works. Yeah. 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 For sure. But I also think like the idea of like, oh, as long as I have the blue light blockers on, I'm fine. There's still other light. Like we're still sensitive to other wavelengths of light. And then again, I think the content is almost as, in my opinion, it might be even more concerning than the actual light. Look, think about watching television. Like if you're, and everybody's different, but if you're kind of sensitive to emotional content and you're watching like high intensity drama or crime Mm -hmm. stuff right before you go to bed might be a little harder to fall asleep. Yeah. Yeah. So all those environmental things that are tied to the day are going to support our natural tendency to go to sleep at night. So that's process C. The other is called process S and that's related to chemicals in our brain. And that's kind of like, I think it stands for sleepiness, but that's how I think of it is that S is for sleepiness. It might stand for something else. But there's actually a chemical called adenosine that builds up in the brain from the time that we wake up and it metabolizes while we're sleeping. So you kind of wake up, you're on ground zero, you don't have much adenosine, so you're not sleepy. It kind of creates a subjective feeling of sleepiness. Good news is if you're working, you know, a day job, like you're not doing night shift work, you're waking up both your circadian rhythm and your sleepiness, your natural sleepiness are in sync. So the sun is saying it's time to get up and you're not sleepy. As the day progresses, the sun peaks in the sky, starts to come down. Your sleepiness across the day is going to just kind of steadily increase, assuming that you're not napping, which we can talk about later. But as you continue to stay awake, you get to a point where that chemical is at its highest point because you've been awake for a long period of time. And great coincidence. The sun is also going down in the sky. There's less light, time to get quiet, time to go to bed. So you're setting yourself up for a good night's sleep because you've got the internal factors that are telling you you're sleepy and you've got the environmental factors that are telling you it's time for bed. Now, one of the things that happens though, they're all like favorite substance in the Western world of coffee, right? Caffeine. So caffeine 
does a great job of making us not feel sleepy because it fills in the receptor for that adenosine chemical. So if you think about receptors like locks and keys, the chemical is the key and the receptor is the keyhole or the lock. If we take all the locks and we're essentially jamming them with bubble gum, right? That's the caffeine. Now I don't feel sleepy, but I've jammed up all the receptors. And then as the day progresses and I have natural sleepiness building up in my brain, my brain doesn't register it because I've jammed those receptors. The half-life of caffeine is about five hours and some it's faster and it's slower in some people. So you need to know your own sensitivity to caffeine. But if you think about it, if you stop drinking coffee in the morning, by the time you go to bed, hopefully most of it's out of your system. If you're drinking caffeine all day long and then you go out, you know, out for dinner and you get like that giant free refills caffeinated soda, you know, I've made that mistake before. And then I'm up in the middle of the night. It's like, oh, well, it's because you chugged, you know, how much caffeine at six o'clock. And five hours would be 11 o'clock and I still have 50% of that caffeine in my body. I'm not going to be ready to sleep. So we have to be really cognizant of that if we want to be able to sleep well. The other thing is napping. So if we take a nap in the afternoon, we're going to basically metabolize a whole lot of that adenosine and we're not going to be sleepy at night. Oh, it's the adenosine. That's fascinating. Yeah. So yeah. as much as like, I always hate this when I'm working with people with sleep issues, I hate saying, okay, you got to stop napping. Cause it just sounds so mean, right? Right, right? But the science is there. We really want to set you up for a good night's sleep at your preferred sleep hours, which for most people are going to be nighttime. And if you're getting that sleep during the day, you're just not going to be ready for it, you know, when it's so, 10 o'clock at night. If, so to clarify, you're not saying napping is bad. You're saying if you have problems sleeping at night, napping might be contributing to Napping can make it hard. It's going to make it harder to not sleep because you're not going to be able to take advantage of that sleepiness essentially so that you can go to sleep at the time you want. Adenosine buildup. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. You know, and people have asked me that and I don't really know what the answer t- is to like, is napping bad? There's actually like some of the research suggests that again, people in the wild would naturally nap because we do have a dip in our circadian rhythm in the afternoon. Right. That right. suggests that we should. And if you think about the parts of the world that people evolved in, it can be yes. really hot, yeah. uh, you know, so probably their sleep looks, looked a little different. They probably right. napped in the afternoon and didn't sleep as much at night, mm-hmm. you know, or the sleep hours were shifted a little bit. But if you're doing like the standard Western world life, mm-hmm. it's probably not going to suit you real well to nap. However, if you don't have any problems with your sleep and you need to take a nap, take a nap. Right. right. Or you're sick, take a nap, you know, like your body is telling you what it needs. Yeah. Listen to your body. And again, if it's not impacting your ability to sleep at night and yeah. Right. Okay. Exactly. Exactly. What about making up sleep? So I have this conversation with my significant other because <laughs> he's really good at staying up really late on the weekends and he'll sleep in and then he's grumpy all day, you know, and And I'm like, because you need, I, like you, have learned just from listening to experts that it's better to stay on a regular, even if you don't have to get, get up, just to get up at the regular time is going to serve you better. And so, you know, the argument, the the discussion that we have is that, but I got eight hours of sleep, you know, I slept till 11 (laughs) so I could get my eight hours. So yeah. Can you make up sleep? Can you sleep extra on 
One you can't day. really sleep extra on the weekends to make up for like, you know, I got six hours of sleep every night. So now I'm going to get nine and that I'm banking Monday and Tuesday and tomorrow I'm banking Wednesday and Thursday. Like it doesn't really work like that because the functions have to happen. Mm-hmm. We can't just save all those immune system functions and memory functions and, you know, all the things that are happening when we're sleeping and say, okay, we're going to get them all on the weekend. Yeah. You know, our body needs that consistency. So unfortunately the answer is you, you can't really if you have a couple of nights where you're up later than normal and you sleep a little bit more than normal. And again, your sleep in general is decent and you generally feel rested and you're not fatigued during the day, then I, I wouldn't worry too much about it. It's kind of like, just kind of apply common sense to that part of it. But certainly if you're struggling with sleep and you're trying to get on top of insomnia, then the recommendations are as consistent as possible. If you have to get up at six in the morning on your work days, you're going to, you know, backtrack from six to, you know, probably nine 30, 10 o'clock for going to bed and try to do that on the weekends as well. Can you touch a moment on sleep aids or whether it's medication mm-hmm. or supplements or melatonin, you know, there's a lot mm-hmm. of, can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. So we talked about caffeine a little bit already, but anything that's going to impact sleep and sleepiness is going to impact how we sleep, how we fall asleep and the way we sleep. So the book is called why we sleep. Don't worry. You yeah. Look up the name I'll, and you put it in. I'll put it in the show notes. Yeah. You, you send it to it's me. I'll make really sure. interesting book, but he talks about in that, that when we are sleeping because of the use of sleep aids or because of, you know, even recreational drugs that impact sleep, our sleep is more similar to the sleep of somebody who's anesthetized or it's not sleep. It's more similar to anesthesia than it is to actual, actual like actual real natural sleep. Natural sleep, like yeah. uh, like cannabis. A lot a lot of folks use um, cannabis to help them fall asleep. And yeah, I'd be interested to know how that is impacting the different quality mm-hmm. of sleep. <laughs> and then there's a lot of medication impact sleep that people might not be aware of. And I, I had a whole list of them and it's, it's too long of a list to even try to read, but some of the top ones wow. that are common medications are beta blockers, diuretics, and antidepressants all impact sleep. So especially for mental health providers, it's so important to be like thinking about the whole picture of what's going on in a person's body. Yeah. And, you know, we know that poor sleep is associated with depression and anxiety, but could it also like, it's a kind of a chicken and the egg. Yeah. Right. If we're treating it with a medication that's also impacting sleep, then, you know, what are we doing? And then how is that impacting this person's emotion regulation the next day when their wow. sleep is off at night? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And then you know, even some of those medications that I'm thinking actually of alcohol, not really a medication, but it might help us to fall asleep. You know, if we've had a few drinks, it disrupts the sleep cycle. And people's sensitivity to that can change across the lifespan. I have a lot of friends my age who will say, if I have more than one glass of wine, I'm going to be up half the night, you know, because it just, it changes that, the sleep rhythms essentially. Yeah, absolutely. What about natural? Well, I guess you could, I don't know if you would categorize alcohol or cannabis as natural supplements, but again, melatonin or chamomile tea or mm-hmm. things that we can be doing to support our level of getting tired in the evening. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. 
you know, I don't, I have not ever seen, and that doesn't mean it's not there, but I haven't seen any research that says, you know, what does chamomile tea do or like sleepy time tea or herbal. However, behaviorally, I can say if that's part of your nighttime, your bedtime routine. And in that hour before I go to bed, I go to bed at 10 o'clock at 9.15, I'm brewing my cup of sleepy time tea and I'm going to go drink it as I'm reading from my devotional or writing in my journal or whatever quiet activity I'm doing. Those are setting up really strong behavioral associations and cues essentially, right? So if that becomes part of the cue, that's going back to the brain. Hey, she's getting ready for bed. Go get into your sleepy space. You yeah, know? no, I love that. That I give uh, ritual, if you yes, will. yes, yeah, and it's it's kind of like it's, it's kind of like paired associate learning, sort of like we're we're just pairing like these environmental cues with the state that we are in, and then that's gonna you know all those cues then become these external factors that that say, hey, time to get ready for bed, time to start winding down and and settling the brain down. Yeah. And cannabis, I am I'm thinking like in like when we're withdrawing from it, it actually impacts sleep. I don't have that right in front of me right now. It's just important to know all of that and and know what it's doing. And like I sometimes when I ask clients now that cannabis is legal in so many states and I'll ask about you, know, you have problems falling asleep. No, not at all. And then later I ask about drug use, why I use edibles every night to go to sleep. I'm like, hmm, <laughs> something's not computing because our bodies know how to go to sleep. Like right. We really if don't rely. That. If you need to rely on um, exactly. some kind. Exactly. Yeah. Even if yeah. it's chamomile tea. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then melatonin, unless anything has changed. Last time I looked at it, melatonin is really FDA approved for jet lag and that's about it. And jet lag is a temporary state. Melatonin's a hormone regulator. You know, we produce it naturally. A lot of my career, I've worked with children and adolescents, and I have always been alarmed by the number of kids who take melatonin every single night. Again, this was something that's coming up in the latest research too, about being very cautious about, because it it is a hormone and it's going to impact. And so for children, especially, mm-hmm. want to watch that. Right. Yeah. So really what I'm hearing you say, which is kind of the obvious, is that you always want to do your own research. You want to talk to your physician about any supplements or tweaking this or that, because there's so many factors that are involved with. um, And then I think people also need to know and be their own best advocate. The gold standard for treatment for insomnia is cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. It's not sleep aids. Wow. I did not know that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So with CBTI, which is cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, there's a psychoeducational element of learning some of the stuff we're talking about now, like what's going to help me to sleep? What are the impact of these things that happen during the day on my sleep? How do I optimize my sleep? Um, there's usually like some sleep diary. Diary? Is that a word? Keeping a sleep diary is a better way of putting that oh, to yeah. really, you know, understand like what's what's happening that's impacting my sleep. How much sleep am I actually getting? When I try different strategies, what happens when these things happen during the day? What happens to my sleep? Getting curious about your own unique biology yes. and rhythm. So understanding all of that, then there's elements of, and we haven't talked about this part yet, really keeping the bed and the bedroom for only sleep and intimacy, just because we want those cues to be like, this is where I sleep, not this is where I sit in bed and pay bills or have a heated argument with my sister on the phone or any of that kind of stuff. We really want the message to the brain to be, this is calming down, settling down, going to sleep. Mm -hmm. For people that are 
in bed, like the example I gave earlier, if you're in bed for eight and a half hours, you're only sleeping for five hours. This might sound counterintuitive, but part of CBTI is sleep restriction. So we want you to have maximum sleep efficiency. So we want you to have like that 94% of the time that I'm in bed, I'm sleeping. And if we're starting with only five hours of sleep, we might make an initial goal of let's get five and a half hours of sleep and be in bed for six so that we're not just laying there half the night. You know, we're like rewiring the brain to when I'm in bed, I'm sleeping. And if I'm not asleep, I'm not in the bed. Right, right. Oh, that's really helpful. Yeah. Yeah. I want to throw one last question and I know that I'm keeping you extra long here. Okay. Thank you very much. What about Alzheimer's or dementia? And I, and I recognize you're not a dementia expert, but I'm really curious if you have any research or anything that, that you know on how sleep might be impacting folks that have memory impairment. Sure. Sure. So unfortunately, sleep is one of the factors that gets impacted by dementia. And we could talk about that for a while, but, and then unfortunately it's also kind of a chicken and the egg cycle with sleep. So the part, one, one of the things that happens when we're sleeping, when we're in deep sleep is the brain cleans itself up. It's, it's pretty phenomenal. The, the neurons kind of pull back a little bit and then the cerebral spinal fluid and whatnot can kind of go in between and clear stuff out. It's just the like, visual, just the visual that you painted is like, yes, <laughs> it's like street sweepers come through, like the brain's asleep. So now we come in and we clean everything up um, and we need to get into those deeper sleep rhythms, like, you know, like stage three sleep, which is lots of deep Delta and theta waves need to be happening for that to happen. And we kind of have like a, almost like a sleep rhythm center. I think it's in the frontal lobes of the brain that kind of sets that, that rhythm for the brain. And unfortunately, the first area, one of the first areas that gets impacted by Alzheimer's is that sleep center, which means not only are we not sleeping well, but then we're not sleeping well, we're not setting that rhythm, we're not cleaning those plaques out of the brain. So it becomes progressive. And because we need sleep to consolidate memory, then we have the impact on memory. So it doesn't sound very optimistic to talk about that. The hope is in the future, we might have some other ways of impacting sleep and using that maybe, you know, in some kind of restorative way. Again, this is like probably pretty far in the future, but to know that unfortunately not sleeping well, chronic insomnia does increase our risk for dementia. And when people have dementia that, you know, the sleep issues are going to go hand in hand with that. Yeah. And I I see that a lot. I know our listeners are very familiar with this Mm -hmm. as well. And then the impact on the primary caregiver, because absolutely they're not also getting the sleep that they need. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, Dr. Kim, this is such a fascinating conversation. Like you said, with every of these points that you brought up, we could talk for an hour easily on each of these areas. So I just want to thank you so, so much for taking the time to come on and giving us just a quick, <laughs> a quick download of how we think about sleep and the things that we can be doing to improve it or just be aware of it. I love, thank you so much for bringing up the CBTI, mm-hmm. so CBT therapy for insomnia. I had no idea that that was such a powerful support for yes. folks with insomnia. So yeah, it's, it's really great. And then for anybody who's listening, who's a mental health provider, you can you have to research it a little bit or, or message me and I can get you the information, but there's a free online certification you can do that was, was produced by the military to help, you know, cause military personnel are getting their sleep disrupted quite a bit. 
but you can, you know, you can do a training and get certification in CBTI. And it's, it's really fascinating to learn about. It's great to use it, you know, to support people. And, you know, again, even if you're not like asleep, like that's not your thing, it's coming in your door. Whether right, you realize absolutely. it or not. I mean, yeah. if you're a human being, you're sleeping. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And quality yeah. very, but yes. Yeah. Yeah. So some great resources that are out there. National Sleep Foundation website has a lot of information. They also have a sleep diary you can download. So if you're curious about your own sleep, you know, take a look at that. Look at the things that you'd be, you know, tracking if you wanted to track it. Where Use that as the sleep diary. Um, National Sleep Foundation. I think it's nsf.org. Okay. I'll find it. I'll stick it in the notes. It's actually, it's sleep, it's sleepfoundation.org. And if you search on there, you should be able to find a sleep diary. Okay. That's on there. But that could be a jumping off point if you're concerned about your sleep to like fill it out, take it in, talk to your doctor about it. One My own bias is know what's available before you start taking sleep aid because, you know, it's easy to write prescriptions, unfortunately, but there's behavioral things that can really help that, you know, don't create dependency the way a sleep aid is going to create dependency. And that book that I referred to is why we sleep by Matthew Walker, Matthew Walker. Perfect. Yep. And then if you go on my website, drkimdwyer.com backslash sleep, I have a blog that has a PDF embedded in it. You can download the PDF of sleep hygiene strategies. Awesome. Okay. There's so many, I'm going to have a bunch of great notes for everybody. (laughs) (laughs) Access. This is wonderful. Well, Kim, thank you so much. This is really valuable information and it's something that impacts caregivers across the board. I mean, whether, whether they're experiencing issues or problems with sleep themselves, or they're caring for somebody who is struggling with that. Mm -hmm. So Thank you. You are very welcome. Thanks for having me. You bet. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have comments or would like to send us a message, you can send it to hello at lifeonrepeatpodcast.com. Please also consider following us at Life on Repeat Podcast, either on Instagram or Facebook. The information shared in this podcast is not a substitute, nor is it meant to convey professional, legal, psychological, financial, or medical advice. If you can use such services, please seek them out from someone you trust.